Hello, you're listening to The Psychedelic Shaman. I'm your host, Michael, and this is the first broadcast of our podcast. And uh, I hope to be putting out one of these every week. And if you like the show, please don't hesitate in going to my website, psychedelicshaman.blogspot.com and leave a little feedback and tell me what you think. Um, This being the first show, I think it'd be prudent for me to talk a little bit about what Psychedelic Shaman is all about. A shaman is someone who explores altered states of reality. They use their senses in a way that's outside of normal, culturally accepted ways of gathering information. Shamans will get information from dreams. They will get information from flashes of insight. They will get information from visions that they will have while tripping on peyote. Or they'll get insights into problems while they're in a state of meditation. I like to think of shamanism as non-linear logic. Information in most areas of life is gathered in a very linear sort of way. You go from A to B to C to D. The information that one gets through psychedelics or other consciousness-altering practices is very nonlinear. It's holographic, for lack of a better term. You get a little piece of the picture over here, a little piece of the picture over there, a little bit of feeling here, a little sense of a smell, a taste, a touch, blurry shapes. The picture is built up a little at a time rather than being able to get the information all at once. It's it's a different mode of cognition. And that being the case, it opens itself to a different mode of study. If one wanted to learn about, say, chemistry, one would read a chemistry book. One would learn all the formulas and theories behind chemistry. They would learn the periodic table of elements, and then they would set about practicing chemistry. They would set about performing experiments and recording the results. In a similar way, shamanism is like chemistry in that you can learn certain things about the proper way of accessing altered states, certain ways of 
tuning your senses to better perceive such altered states, studying metaphorical maps that other people have created of such altered states, and then begin to run experiments and record your results. The obvious difference, of course, is that the experiments of the shaman take place in the non-physical. They take place in the mind or, if you, if you wish, the astral, whereas chemistry takes place in the physical. And I would say that both disciplines create observable results, although the results of chemistry are objectively observable. People can look at it and say, yes, I can see that that chemical and that chemical pr produce a particular effect. And anybody else looking at it would be able to say the same thing. Shamanism produces subjective effects, effects that the individual practitioner, the individual shaman, would be able to say, yes, I can see that there has been an effect. I communicated with this entity, and then A, B, and C happened to me afterwards. There has been an effect. But again, this is subjective. This is something that only the individual can know for sure. In this way, shamanism is much like studying your dreams or dream interpretation. Few people would deny the existence of dreams, although there are some hardcore scientists that even refute the existence of dreams and say that they are merely momentary fantasies that we come up with upon waking and we believe that we've been dreaming for a long period of time when in actuality it's something that we string together the spur of the moment upon waking up. I tend to believe that that's a much more far-fetched idea than to say that we have been experiencing a a process of, of thinking, an altered state in which information has been processed in our brain over a period of time. But there's no way to actually see dreams unless you are the dreamer. There's no way for you to point to a person and say, you, watch my dreams tonight and you'll be able to see what I'm seeing. We can't do that at least not yet. The technology may be invented in the, near, in the near future that will allow such consensual dreaming to happen, but for the time being, it is completely ob, um, a completely subjective experience. Shamanism is a subjective science. And, and I say it is a science because there are certain underlying techniques
that in order to get good repeatable results you have to employ every time um, to begin with borrowing from the idea of psychedelics or some say that they borrowed the idea from spirituality uh, the idea of set and setting Timothy Leary came up with the idea for set, setting, and dosage as to what kind of experience a psychedelic explorer will have. Set would be the mindset that a person brings to the experience. The setting would be how the actual environment is set up for the explorer, what kind of uh, music's being played. Are the lights dim or bright? Is it going to be done in a church or in a cave, outside or in a person's bedroom? And, of course, dosage is the dosage of the particular psychedelic being used. These same parameters are found in religious and magical rituals, set and setting although dosage will, would depend particularly on whether or not a psychedelic substance was in use, which many times psychedelic substance substances have been used by certain uh, cultures around the world for both religious and magical practice. But the whole idea of setting up a environment that will lead to a particular outcome. Setting up your your experiment, and we even have this in the world of science. You set up your experiment by limiting your experiment to certain parameters. You have your hypothesis that you set up your experiment to either prove or disprove, and once the experiment is over, you can look at the results and see what the outcome is. So in this way, magic and shamanism are similar to the classical sciences. Where they differ, of course, is the area of experimentation isn't the physical world. It's in the world of the mind. Now, from my particular perspective... Modern shamanism, shamanism practiced by those of the Western world instead of those of, for lack of a better term, primitive societies, is that the shamanism of the West is about exploration. It's about, in the words of uh, Morpheus from The Matrix, freeing your mind. The Matrix is a uh, is a classical myth couched in new science fiction terminology. But the classical idea that reality isn't what we think it is is as old as mankind. But I think that the new idea 
is that we can all be shamans. We can all see past the hallucination. And the first step to doing that is seeing past the hallucination of culture. That's the first step. Seeing past your own biases that, that you've been raised with. See, most of our beliefs have not, be, have not been consciously chosen by us. They've been forced into us. They've been forced into us by our parents. They've been hammered into our heads by our teachers, by priests, by people on TV, celebrities, by movies, by television shows, by books, by magazines. It's not our fault. It just seems to be the right thing to do. The only problem is, is that by reinforcing these cultural myths, we rob ourselves of the ability to question. We rob ourselves of the ability to say, but is it true? And when we rob ourselves of the ability to say, but is it true? But is it real? Then we become cogs in the machine just as all people were caught up in the matrix in the movie and only those who were able to say what is the matrix had even a small chance of getting free if you can't even see that there is a matrix if you can't even see past your own cultural biases to recognize that something isn't quite right, then you're never going to be able to get out of it. You're never going to be able to escape the matrix. So what is the matrix? Well, that's reality. What we term reality is the same as the matrix. Now, I'm not going to, at least I, I hope that I'm not going to wake up one day and find myself in a tank of gelatinous goo on a planet Earth that's been ravaged and is dead. Um, it's an interesting plot device, but not one that I think is highly likely. But I do like the metaphor. We're all asleep. We all follow certain routines. We don't even question it. We don't even question why we go to work every day. We don't even question why we send our children to schools. We don't even question why we buy large SUVs even though the world's running out of oil. We don't even question why the government is warring with countries in the Middle East. And even when we do question we question it based on a root assumption. We question, well, why are we at war with Iraq? Not because we're against war in principle, but we want to know what was our good reason to go in there. As if, if there was a good enough reason, then we wouldn't have any problem with it. And this is one of the things that we really have to start exploring 
and when I say we, I mean the entire human race. As systems of communication become more ubiquitous, as we're able to get information faster and more direct, that can either be used to free us, free ourselves of our cultural programming, or it can be used to control us even further. And this is not something that you can sit on the fence about. This is something that is going to be a big issue. And if we don't look into it now, if you don't start wondering and questioning now, then you may not be able to question in the future. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, look, there was a time when if you didn't like what was going on in the world, you could run away. If you didn't like what was going on in one country, you could go to another country. If you didn't like what was going on in your hometown, you could go to a different town. And things would be different. If you didn't like the city life, you could go to the country. If you didn't like the country, you could go to the wilderness. But now, every place is accessible. There is no place where you can escape culture. You can receive cell phone calls in the middle of the wilderness. You can have broadband internet uplinks in the middle of nowhere. Culture is spreading at the speed of light. And it's spreading with the internet. Now, the Internet is one of the greatest inventions that mankind has ever seen. It's allowed us to have a voice on an individual basis that we would have never had before. Think of it as the printing press to the tenth power. Because... The printing press gave voice to individuals that could afford a printing press. And they were never cheap. And paper wasn't cheap. So the printing press did allow for the mass education of people. It did allow for literacy to sweep across the globe. But what it didn't allow for was for every person to become their own publisher. Only certain people's opinions mattered. They were called authors or publishers. And that was that. If you wanted to be a writer, you had to convince a publisher that your stuff was worth publishing. If you wanted to be a singer, you had to convince a record studio or a radio executive that your stuff was worth either putting on a record or putting on the radio. If you were an actor or a director, you had to convince a studio that your stuff was worth putting on film. If you wanted to be a TV director or had an idea for a TV show, you had to convince television executive that there was a reason to put your stuff on TV. 
And it didn't matter whether it was information that was necessary to people. It didn't matter if it was information that might be wanted by the public. If they couldn't figure out a way of profiting from it, if it couldn't be profitable, then it wasn't printed, it wasn't recorded, it wasn't transmitted. But today, everything's changed. Anybody, and I mean anybody, can have a podcast now. Anybody can have a web page. Anybody can communicate with anybody else in the world. That's not hyperbole. You don't even need an internet connection in order to communicate on the internet. Libraries allow you to go on for free. You can create a web page in about five minutes. Hell, I created my Blogspot blogger with Blogger in about five minutes. If you can do that, you've got a voice. That means anybody can do this. Anybody can make a podcast. I'm not special in that regard. All it takes is some public domain recording software and a computer that's got a audio card. And there's plenty of computers out there that are under a hundred bucks. And there's plenty of media labs out there in major cities that allow people to record this stuff for free. You know, this this is the time when communication has become democratized. So if communication has become democratized, that means that there are no arbiters of what's true. Look at the world around us. Every time communication has been broadened, every time the gatekeepers have been threatened, they've reacted with hostility. MP3s allowed anybody to have the same power as a record company. And the record companies panicked. Internet with blogs and podcasting allowed anybody to be a journalist. And how did the networks react? Well, they reacted, as you would expect, by ridiculing them, at least at first. And then when it was found that the weblogs were pretty reliable pretty accurate, at least as accurate as print and broadcast news services, and many times were able to respond to stories much quicker than the traditional media, well, the traditional media started to co-opt it. So what's happening? What's happening is that we are rapidly evolving past the point of needing authorities. We don't need newspapers to tell us what's true. We don't need news channels to tell us what's true. We don't need studios to distribute movies for us. We don't need television stations or television networks to create shows for us. We don't need that. We can do it ourselves. Now, if we can do all that ourselves, then 
maybe we could educate ourselves too. Look at Wikipedia. This is a big one. Educators all over the country railed against Wikipedia. They didn't allow students to use it for citing uh, any kind of facts in their papers. Because they said, well, this is something that can be edited by anybody. They can put anything they want in there. How can it be reliable? But it is. The print world of encyclopedia companies like Webster's and Funk and Wagnall and Britannica, they all said, oh, well, those, you know, Wikipedia can't be as accurate as, as our as, as our uh, print versions are, and they have their own online versions too, but it's funny. You compare entries in Wikipedia to entries in Webster's or any other encyclopedia, and you find that, one, Wikipedia has more entries, covers a much broader areas of uh, diverse subjects, and the entries tend to be more accurate. And if this is so, then you can see why many authorities are panicking. Because, well, if we don't need newspapers, and we don't need TV stations, and we don't need radio stations, and we don't need record companies, and we don't need movie production companies, then... That means we also don't need encyclopedia publishing companies. And by extension, we don't need schools. We don't need colleges or universities. All these things are institutions that have been set up to perpetuate certain ideas, to perpetuate ideas that control people, that give certain ideas the rubber stamp and other ideas are banned. This perpetuates a culture of control. When we are able to utilize the technology at our disposal for eliminating all these different tendrils, all these different tentacles of control, then the only institution left in control is one, the government, and two, religion. Now, religion is beyond reproach because religion doesn't matter what you might publish about a religion, it all comes down to faith. At least they are honest enough to say that it doesn't really matter what you say about us and it doesn't even matter what's said in our own religious texts. What really matters are what our parishioners believe. But you can even see that this idea is coming under fire. That instead of religions being organizations where the people at the top tell the people at the bottom, the parishioners, what to think and believe, more and more you're getting a feedback loop where the people at the top are saying, this is what you have to believe, and the people at the bottom going, well, you know, that's not exactly what we want. So, you know, we're going to either go off and join a different religion, or we're going to start a different religion, or we'll start our own denomination, our own offshoot. Religions are 
having to become much more um, responsive to their parishioners because of the fact that technology is allowing parishioners to get information about their religion, get information about their clergy, and to respond to their clergy in a much more effective, efficient, and rapid way. Well, this leaves the government as the last bastion of control. Now, how long before we start questioning whether the government's necessary? What I'll tell you, if this last presidency didn't cause a lot of people to question whether government's necessary or not, I don't know what will. Uh, maybe a reincarnation of Adolf Hitler in the United States. I don't know. But it seems to me that it's more vital today than it ever has been to start getting people to do practices that will allow them to suspend judgment about reality, at least for long enough for them to take a look at what's going on and say, wow, I wonder if what I believe is accurate. And psychedelics tend to do that with a high degree of efficacy. The psychedelic that I use and that I believe is one of the most effective is ayahuasca. Now, if you search the internet, you'll find a lot of different formulations of ayahuasca. Ayahuasca traditionally is a brew that is consumed by certain Indian tribes in South America, specifically Brazil, Ecuador, and I believe some areas of Argentina. Now, Again, there's many different formulas, formulations. Traditionally, um, it uses the vine known as Banisteriopsis copy and the leaves of the Psychotria viridis plant, which is a kind of wild coffee. These two plants in combination create a powerful hallucinogen. Banisteriopsis copy provides an MAO inhibitor that prevents the body from metabolizing um, the chemical in the Psychotria viridis. Um, the DMT in the Psychotria is what provides the psychedelic constituent. Um, in order for it to be orally active, though, the Banisteriopsis copy must be consumed to act as the MAO inhibitor. Now, the we in the Western world have gotten a good grasp on how ayahuasca works. Many people, especially those explorers on the internet, have found plants that are much more accessible, much easier to get, much cheaper to get than the traditional South American plants. Although many people use the traditional plants, too, because a kind of cottage industry has arisen in South America in providing these plants to other parts of the world for people to experiment. The combination I particularly like to use is a, a uh, 
a plant that bears DMT that's known as Mimosa hostilis, or the sensitive plant. Mimosa hostilis contains a high amount of DMT, especially concentrated in the root bark. Um, as an MAO inhibitor, I use the seed of the Syrian rue plant. Um, this is a Middle Eastern plant that is used in in uh, some sects of uh, Middle Eastern religion, especially Zor Zoroastrianism, um, as well, I believe, in some uh, Muslim sects, um, especially the uh, uh, the Dervish sect. Um, but I digress. The point is, the combination of Syrian rue and Mimosa hostilis create a powerful psychedelic effect. Some people like to brew this into a drink. I find trying to choke this stuff down in the form of a tea is nauseating. And although many people believe that nausea and vomiting are a valuable part of the experience... They call it purging and see it as being healing. I have never really been partial to vomiting. Uh, vomiting has always been a very traumatic experience for me and has always led to uh, busted blood vessels in the face and uh, uh, invariably me looking like the living dead for weeks after. Um, a purplish cast to my skin is is not something that I really look forward to repeating. Um, therefore, uh, my particular method is, well, admittedly a little bit non-traditional, but it's something that I've gotten from certain sources off the internet, in that I I uh, create extracts. And uh, the resulting extracts are then gel-capped and uh, consumed that way. The actual gel caps have a reddish-purple tinge to them because the extract itself is, is uh, a purplish-violet color, uh, which kind of appeals to my sensibility and uh, the fact that I'm, I'm a big fan of the movie The Matrix. I call them my red pills. Now, I have done many experiments with ayahuasca, especially this formulation. And uh, one of the reasons why I like it is because I've been able to utilize this formulation many times without any sort of uh, nausea at all. And I believe that that's much more useful because there are certain situations where you just do not want to have to get up and vomit. And this is especially true if you're going to be doing any kind of, uh, of ritual healing um, in a place that's maybe uh, out of the way someplace that you don't have access to uh, um, 
already access to a place where you can vomit in peace. I highly recommend it. I've got a uh, recipe that is on my my blog that you can click over to it at uh, psychedelicshaman.blogspot.com and uh, you can find it there as well as links to places where you can find the actual constituents of that formulation. Anyway, um, I have found that ayahuasca tends to dissolve cultural assumptions. Uh, when you take it, it's very, it's very overpowering. It's an ordeal. You feel like you're feverish. You feel like I, I can tell you my personal experience is that it's almost like coming down with a sickness, but you don't really feel bad. Anybody who's ever experienced a really bad case of the flu may be able to identify with me here. There are some points when I have the flu, and and actually, to be honest, I haven't come down with the flu in many years, I would say since I started using ayahuasca, I have never come down with the flu. Um, I don't know if the two are related in any way, but there is that little factoid, and you can interpret it any way you wish. But my point is, is that when you're under the influence, when you're starting to get near the peak of the experience, the body goes through an interesting sensation in that you feel your body is is both full of energy and weak. You feel dizzy, yet you feel clarity. You feel rushes of of feelings through your body and almost feels like you're running a temperature even though you're not. Your body tends to sweat. Um, you you have this feeling of just wanting to lay down and wrap yourself up in a blanket. At least, this is my personal experience. I just wanted to lie down and, and stay in bed and just experience what was going on in my head. Um, I had many visions of an atavistic nature. I felt like I was becoming certain animals. I also had this this feeling that I was at the center of my own reality. Now, this might seem trite and and even a bit obvious that we are all at the center of our own reality, except for the fact that when you are peaking on psychedelics, especially ayahuasca, and to a lesser extent mushrooms, you really feel that all of creation is revolving around you somehow. That every bit of this world is an extension of yourself. It's really difficult to describe until you actually experience it yourself. But when you do experience it, it completely alters your worldview. It completely alters your idea of what it means to be alive. 
because especially in the West, we grow up with this idea that reality is something that happens to us, that life is to a certain extent a crapshoot. You have certain parameters that you're born into. You may have certain natural abilities that you are born with. You may be born into a family with money or without money. You may be born into a family of a particular ethnic class. And whatever you're born with, that's your lot in life. And that wherever you go in life is related to either dumb luck or hard work or maybe a little bit of both. But very few people would agree with the idea that somehow everything that happens to them happens to them for their benefit. You can't help but think when you're under the influence of psychedelics that reality is like a novel. And not only are you the main character, but you're also the novelist. And that somehow, even though you're not aware of where the plot's going to go, you have this sneaking suspicion that you're at the center of the creative process. And even if this wasn't metaphysically true, metaphorically, we know that this is true because every person is to a greater or lesser extent the captain of their own ship they are the one that really decides what they're going to do in life if i wanted to i could get into my car right now and drive to texas i don't know what i'd do there i don't know why i would want to go there but if i decided that i wanted to do that i could Nobody would be able to stop me if I really wanted to go there. And my life would change as a result. Few people stop to think about that. Many people feel trapped in their life. Many people feel like they have to go to the job that they go to. They have to be in the relationship that they're in. They have to go to the school that their parents want them to go to. They have to whatever. They have to go to the church that they go to. They have to believe whatever they were raised to believe because somehow they will end up hurting somebody or disappointing somebody if they don't. But the point is, is that we are all in this together on one respect. And in another respect, we're all in this by ourselves. I can do whatever I wish to do in life and so can you taking psychedelics help you realize that all these things that were programmed into our minds are just programs they're not real they're not actual restraints that are put on our behavior most of the time people act as if their beliefs are restraints on their behavior but once you realize that they're just they're just voices in our head they're just memories they don't really control us then you can get to the idea of okay so i've got programs 
how do I get rid of them? How do I change them? And that's going to be the subject of our next podcast. Um, I'm going to be talking a little bit about neuro-linguistic programming, hypnosis, and uh, certain discoveries of cognitive science that are relative to this, relative, excuse me, relevant to this discussion. And um, hopefully I will have that online within the next week or so. And, uh, well, until then, I hope you've enjoyed this somewhat rambling first episode of The Psychedelic Shaman. And, um, well, give me, give me your feedback. I'd like to hear what you think, good or bad. I can take constructive criticism. I can take non-constructive criticism, too. But, you know, I prefer positive ideas. You know, if you've got a subject that you think that you would like me to talk about or something you'd want me to cover or perhaps a person that you would like me to interview, hey, if you'd like me to interview you, um, send me an email. Go to my website, psychedelicshaman.blogspot.com. Click on the link and you can send me an email and you can tell me what you think. You can make a suggestion, or you can just say hi. Uh, Anyway, that's it for now. Thank you so much for listening. This has been the Psychedelic Shaman. Good night.